forever. Dog. Just between us. Hey. Just between us. Hey. Hello. I'm Allison Raskin. I'm a writer, mental health advocate, and I'm back on the gel manicure train. Hi, I'm Gabby Dunn. I'm a writer, bicon, bisexual icon, wink, and I was late to get here and I forgot everything. Literally showed up, no equipment. Just like, what did I think we were doing today? I'm not sure. What's right? Like, why am I the person that forgets the one thing you need? Like, I'm like the person who like rolls up to Kinko's and I'm like, I don't even have the paper. Like, what? How did? How? How does this happen? You're you're in school. You're a mental health advocate. You're a psychologist. Okay, I'm absolutely not a psychologist. Whatever, you study the brain. What's wrong with me? No, I'm not doing that. (laughs) I can guarantee I'm not doing that. My law and ethics teacher was like, your friends are going to come to you for help and you have to say no. Really? (laughs) She was like, you're too deep into this now to like give advice to your friends. But you give advice on a podcast. Yeah, and I probably shouldn't. Wow. (laughs) Well, this is just between us, a variety show filled with heartfelt advice. Ridiculous games. And brutal, brutal honesty. (laughs) Uh, let's just say the advice is heartfelt. It's not professional advice. Exactly. Yeah. And like, you know, I think there's a difference between like listening to somebody and sort of like offering feedback versus like pathologizing someone and being like, this is what is medically wrong with you. Yeah. I saw a bunch of videos. I just fell down a hole yesterday and I saw a bunch of videos of like YouTubers who don't have any qualifications, like making drama videos about other YouTubers, but using diagnoses. So being like, this person is clearly schizophrenic. Look at this video. Look at their eyes. Or like this person's clearly like has bipolar disorder or whatever. And I was like, what? I was just sort of like, one, this is really a weird thing to like make drama videos about. Like, I think that's pretty dangerous. But also like, if you don't have any qualifications, it's just so um, presumptuous to be like, I know what this person's mental health is. Oh, absolutely. And even if you are like licensed, like you wouldn't diagnose somebody who's not your patient. Right. <laughs> you don't just like right. go around being like, oh yeah, that waitress has, <laughs> you know, histrionic personality disorder. <laughs> like, I don't even know what that is. Um, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I'm like a pretty, I would say, confident, arrogant person. I wouldn't ever say that's what this person has. But kind of it's kind of normalized in a weird way where people will be like, oh, that person was mean to me and then like whisper like, damn borderline. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like This weird sort of like labeling of every behavior. Yeah, it's dangerous. And, you know, I think it's also dangerous. We've talked a bit about like you when you're self-diagnosing yourself with that stuff, too. But like we just have to just take the information of what people are giving us and then decide how we want to interact with it versus like pathologizing them. It's such a leap to pathologizing. I feel like that's become like more. Although I don't know, I guess maybe. But people have the wrong ideas, too, or they'll jump to sociopath. Like, obviously, love Olivia Rodrigo. But I have a little issue with, like, the song where she's like, you're a goddamn sociopath. And I was like, if we just didn't have this one line. Yeah. I it's just kind of like any any guy who's mean to you is not a sociopath. (laughs) Yeah, it's tough. Language is tough because it's so powerful. But also, we don't always have a lot of other options. I know. That's the thing. You know? You're mad. So what do you say? Like we, you know, we don't have like a, a more appropriate fill in the blank. And like there's so many words that we use are so harmful 
But then again, you're just sort of like scrambling to use something less harmful because it doesn't really always exist. I mean, also, I think people are like, well, it, it makes it makes me feel better about the situation if I'm just like that person's quote unquote crazy. Mm-hmm. So we don't have a way to express like I, you know, the nuances of human uh, interaction. And also separating the action itself from who they are as a person. Whoa. So like, ding, you ding, know, ding, that ding. behavior in that day was incredibly harmful and painful to me versus like this person is a blank. Yes, absolutely. I'm glad we're getting very serious in the intro. <laughs> well, we've got a great episode for you guys this week. We're so excited to be back to once a week, which means that we're coming at you with all of your favorite segments in one episode. Oh, man. Get pumped. We're also recording in person again a lot of the time. So that's cool. And this week, we're going to be asking Gabrielle Korn some tough questions about the beauty industry and social media and toxicity. And later, we're going to be talking about going off your meds because I I went off my meds. (laughs) And then you went right back on them. (laughs) Yes, I did. Huge reveal. But first, we're going to answer a listener's question. Hit it. International question. International question. International question, Megan, the Netherlands. So, okay, strap in, (laughs) strap in, everyone. Gabby and I are not sure we're going to be able to give a good answer to this one, but we think it raises some really interesting questions and dilemmas So we wanted to, to address it anyway. Oh, God. TLDR, after two years, I'm confronted with seeing the other woman again. How do I get rid of my anxiety towards her? This is so stressful. I know. This is so stressful. I feel very stressed. Okay. Yeah. Dear Allison and Gabby, I've been a longtime viewer of yours since the BuzzFeed era, and you've helped me get through a lot of issues. You've been the two older sisters I love having a parasocial relationship (laughs) with, and I've often binged old JBU videos just to reminisce and see how far you've grown alongside myself. Now to get to the story part. I've been in a pretty awesome relationship for almost three and a half years now, and he and I are at a point in our relationship that it feels both effortless and indestructible. One of the reasons we've managed to do this is to go through a hell of a lot of bad times in the beginning. And this story stems from one of those bad times. I'm a cultural anthropologist working at a university and he's in a higher position at a bouldering gym. And because of my flexible hours, I'm there quite often. Well, except for a whole year when I was too afraid to step through the door. Two years ago, he cheated on me with a coworker. Cheating always hurts. I was very upset with him, but we ended up working through it. But for some reason, her side of things still hurt me. I knew her. She was 19 at the time. I was 22 and my boyfriend was 28, which was quite upsetting. And although I can reasonably think about this and understand that she just made a stupid decision that was probably manipulated by him, these actions showed me that she doesn't respect me, which was something I had not dealt with before. I became afraid of going to the gym, even though she left our city soon after the fact to study elsewhere. However, his boss just announced that she's coming to work there again. And after he told me, it suddenly felt like I was back where I was two years ago. A big factor in this is that I compete with her in my mind. Our appearances and personalities are quite different. And though I'm happy with myself, it fucks with my brain to see her. She's stuck in my brain telling me, I won. I convinced your boyfriend to hurt you. I'm better than you. This is an oversimplification, but it describes how it manifests. I'm sure as hell not going to talk to her about it. I want her to think I'm over it. And I just want to pretend she doesn't exist. After all, she probably never thinks about me, which kind of makes it worse because I feel pathetic about thinking about her so much after all this time. I want to be a strong person that doesn't blame the other woman. I'm in a good relationship. There's literally nothing wrong, but my negative thoughts keep intruding and it's making me nauseous. I've been diagnosed with PTSD from other traumatic events in my life and have a panic disorder. 
So I'm scared of having a full-blown panic attack when I see her again. And when you're scared of having one, you're going to get one. So that sucks as well. I hope your two cents can give me some insights into unlocking my inner I don't care and I love myself persona. I just want to accept that she exists, but dismiss it and continue to live my best life. How does one do that? How can I keep her or this like demonized version of her from popping into my brain like this? Okay, wow. I realize now I've never written this down before. I sound nuts. I love you guys a lot and wish you all the best. Thank you so much for all of your hard work. You do not sound nuts. You don't even sound a little nuts. A couple of things jumped out to me in this email. I think that's the thing that jumped out to me the most was the sentence where you said, and there is nothing wrong in my relationship. And the nothing was in all caps. Every relationship has issues. And so I think that that, and again, I'm spitballing here. I have no idea. But I think that maybe because of the fact that you like worked through this, this cheating, you now have to feel like this relationship is perfect. And therefore it was, it was worth you putting through, getting through the cheating because the narrative is we went through this really hard time and now we have this perfect relationship. And I wonder what it would look like for you to instead be like, I'm still feeling the ramifications of this. Like my partner did cheat on me and that continues to affect me to this day. And like, that's okay. (laughs) You know, like obviously for this person to be bringing up all of these feelings for you, like you haven't fully processed what happened and Mm -hmm. that's totally fine and, and completely understandable. But then you're adding this layer of being mad at yourself for not having fully processed it. Absolutely. This is obviously a bad thing that happened. I don't know who's telling you that it was like you should be over it or that like that you any of your feelings about it aren't valid because they completely are. I was stressed out reading this, (laughs) (laughs) you know, and and I and I think a lot of times like when we work really hard on our mental health, we want to not feel like we're backsliding in any way. We want to feel like we're stronger and that we're getting better and that we're putting in the work. And so then to feel confronted with something that is going to, you know, kind of upset our balance, it feels like a failure. But we just have to remember that like mental health is not linear and all of that work that you've done, it's going to make it so even if she does upset you and it makes you more unbalanced, like it's not going to be the same as before. Mm -hmm. So you can still get unbalanced and still see that you've had progress. Mm -hmm. Now, here's what stuck out to me. I understand she just made a stupid decision that was probably manipulated by him. Say more about that. Because <laughs> what? Like, what do, you, what do you mean manipulated by him? Like, the facts of this case, Your Honor, is that a teenage girl was manipulated by a man 10 years older than her and you, his girlfriend, know and believe that? Like, why do you think that that's a thing that that happened? And like, I'm confused what you're saying. What? Like you're, you're saying if she knows this is the situation, why is she still with no, the? Not why is she still with him? Because maybe maybe she's maybe he's changed. Maybe they've worked part of working through it is that he's like, that was like a horrible version of me. And like, I'm not like that anymore. But like to be blaming, I expected her to say this girl went after him. But that's not the situation. So I'm just curious, like, you need to like if you need to talk to the boyfriend like he needs to be doing things that reassure you you can't go to him I'm worried that she thinks she can't go to him because he'll be like you're being nuts or that she can't go to him because he'll take it personally and get defensive or something like I like it's not out of 
pocket to go to him and be like, look, this girl's coming back into our lives. And like, I'm going to need extra care and affection and um, reassurances from you. And he should give that. I also think that it could be helpful to recognize that it is not the girl herself that is that is causing you this distress that like it is what this girl represents it is the fact that like she's bringing up attachment wounds she's bringing up like a time when you got deeply hurt like i think it might be helpful to to just recognize that like it is your idea of her that holds all of this power versus the reality of her. Right, exactly. But I wonder if it's easier for her to put all of her unprocessed feelings about what happened onto this girl rather than onto the boyfriend. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> for her to bring up all of this stuff suggests to me that you don't actually feel safe in your current relationship. Correct, exactly. And that's not necessarily... It's not a, it's not a death knell. And it's also... You know, I think you're looking at this as like, I have to take responsibility for not feeling safe. I have to work Uh through this on my own. This is my own stuff. And a lot of times I would agree that like you are your own primary helper. Like you have to, you know, get yourself to a place of stability in order to have a secure attachment. But like you in this case, (laughs) I think this is something you're also going to have to work on with your partner. Like it's this is not all on you to be okay with the fact that this girl is coming back into your lives. And also, like, I mean, I'm curious about his reaction, right? If if you go, hey, it's kind of messing with me that this girl's going to be back at the gym. And he's like, I apologize. I don't know why you're still stuck on this or whatever. That's a very different situation. Like, I feel like if I was the boyfriend and I knew that this girl was coming back to the gym, I would be like over the top, like are you okay? Like, I understand that this is going to be like a lot. Like I would feel as stressed out about this as like the, you know, the, the girlfriend. But if she has to pretend that like, oh, this isn't affecting me to put on a face in front of him, that is worrisome because I feel like, I don't know, feminism's really done a lot, guys. And like part of it is like this thing of like, I, we have to love every other woman and like, I can't blame the other woman or or whatever. But like her, her being back there, I agree. I agree with you is not good. (laughs) Like, I don't know how to like we don't obviously we don't know what she's thinking. And like and like not just that you're worried about like a demonized version of her who's like, ha ha, I won your boyfriend. But you're also worried about a different version of her who's like not even thinking about you or like doesn't even care about you. So like both of those are distressing to you. Um, And I don't think you have to pretend this doesn't affect me. You don't have to talk to her or whatever, but like you can talk to him and say it is affecting you. I don't think that's out of line. Yeah, and when it comes to like you, you ask like, how do I get to this place of I don't care and I love myself? I think it is human to care, but I also think that there is some work that needs to be done here for you to get to a place where you feel more secure and where you are not feeling like the fact that you feel so threatened and the fact that you feel, you know, that that signals to me that like regardless of you saying the relationship is perfect, like you don't actually feel safe in the relationship. And that might be because of what your your boyfriend is is giving off. Or it might just be because, like you said, like you haven't necessarily gotten to that place of of self-worth and, and self-confidence. And, you know, and those are things that you can really work on in therapy. Those are things that you can work on through like strong relationships with other people. Mm-hmm. So like if you have like, you know, like think about the, the secure relationships you do have in your life, if you have any, like mm-hmm. do you have really great friends? Like, you know, 
this is all sort of coming back to like this feeling like you are not good enough. Someone's going to reject you. Like that's all like very clear, like attachment stuff. And and that stuff is hard to work through. But I think that this idea of like, oh, I should be totally fine. I have to be strong. Like, nah, no, girl. like this, nah, is, girl. this is tough and this is going to be a lot of work and that's okay. And like, it sucks because you think you already worked through it and you did it, you know, those two years ago. And, and so it's like frustrating that like you have to deal with it again. Mm-hmm. But like, relationships are really fucking hard and mm-hmm. you, there's going to be times that are messier and that are more emotional and that involve more work. And this just might be one of them for you. And you're allowed to ask for help and reassurance from your partner during one of these times. Like you're allowed this fucking thing about like, you got to be cool with everything. You can ask for reassurance and help. And that's not something that's like wildly, oh my God, I can't believe she's doing this. Just cut yourself a break. Totally. Like, it's totally fine and valid that you're feeling this way. And yes. if anything, just give yourself some self-compassion that you're about to go through a tough time. And don't add that extra thing of like, well, I should be strong. It's like, you are strong. You're getting through it. You're not running to another country. Like you're staying in the, you know, like yeah. just you staying in the relationship and fighting for the relationship is strength, but you can be upset along the way. Here's a question. What if the girl apologizes to her? It has nothing to do with the girl for me. I know, but I'm just curious. Like, I don't think that anything this girl does or doesn't do is going to help until, you know, Megan works through Megan's stuff. Yeah. Which sucks. Yeah. (laughs) But it's just just the reality. It's just like everyone else should be like, are you okay? And like, I don't know. I'm just like, I'm just like this thing of like, you have to be strong and whatever. I'm like, a bad thing did happen. Totally. I think that like, sometimes it can be harmful to be like, my relationship is is perfect. I'm the problem. Correct. Exactly. Especially when factually, that's not correct. Yeah. And like, you know, oh, man, oh, man, sometimes you need to to work on on things that you haven't worked, you know, like, this is a flare up for your relationship. So even if things had been kind of smooth sailing, now you have a flare up. And so how are you going to deal with it? Yes. And he has to be part of that. Mm-hmm. I oh. hope that that helped. Um, please keep us updated. If you want to submit your international question, send it to justbetweenuspod at gmail.com. That's justbetweenuspod at gmail.com. And believe me, it is not lost on me that after saying I shouldn't diagnose people, I talked a bunch about attachment issues. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sweating. Okay, stick around <laughs> after the break. We've got a juicy interview with our highly esteemed guest, Gabrielle Korn. Welcome back to Just Between Us. It's time for the juiciest, most scandalous, controversial segment known to all of podcasting. Tough questions. This week on the show, we have Gabrielle Korn, a journalist and digital media expert. She's currently the editorial and publishing lead of The Most, Netflix's home for LGBTQ storytelling on social media. And her book is called Everybody Else is Perfect, How I Survived Hypocrisy, Beauty, Clicks, and Likes. Hello, fellow Gabrielle. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> so your book is about like the beauty industry and surviving in it. So when did you start to sort of feel like this wasn't great? <laughs> <laughs> Pretty immediately, honestly. Like I got into beauty totally by accident. I had been working in queer and feminist media and um, I needed more money than that. And got a job as a production assistant in the beauty department at Refinery29. And what ended up happening was within like three months of getting hired, my department, which had only been responsible for like 
three stories a day, suddenly we were responsible for 18 stories a day and there were only four of us. And so like within that first few months, I was like, oh God, this is going to be really insane. And like, how did it get, how did it get insane? (laughs) It was like, so it was a few things. It was like the volume of work. And this is obviously not specific to beauty. This is kind of like a digital media thing, but it was like, you know, there's always more that you have to do. And it's like, it's just this race to figure out what the next thing people are going to click on is going to be. But it's also like at that time, which was the early 2010s, like page views were, were an important metric. So it was like the volume of articles that we had to turn out all the time. So it was like writing like mascara roundups and like hair inspo galleries. And I was really interested in talking about beauty from the perspective of something that connects us, something that informs how you see your place in the world because like whether or not you have a beauty a beauty routine that's still like a beauty routine and how you present yourself aesthetically is it just says so much about you and about society and so I really wanted to do that and I had I had editors who supported me which was amazing but it in a lot of ways it was this uphill battle to try to create content that was not just like hair inspiration and product reviews, but that went a little little bit deeper. And that also represented a wide range of people. And that part was the biggest challenge because it was like the beauty industry wanted to pretend that queer women didn't exist. It wanted to pretend that like this idea of whiteness and thinness was like the ideal that everyone should be striving for. It kind of forced you to frame things in this way where like writers of beauty at that time would tell women that there was something wrong with them and the story they were reading would tell them how to fix it. It was just like this kind of toxic feedback loop that I found myself in. How has the beauty industry changed now that social media is what social media is? You know, I think it's changed for the better and also for the worse. When you have a platform that has people being able to show themselves how they want to be seen. It is this amazing equalizer. Like I think there's been like a democratization of beauty in general, but I also think that like when you have the ability to control your own image, I don't necessarily think people have stepped away from the kind of like photoshopping that we grew up seeing. If anything, like people are just kind of doing it to themselves. So I think on the one hand, you have areas of social media that are like, super body positive, super like celebratory of differences. And then you have the rest of social media, which is like Facetune that kind of takes Photoshopping to the next level. And these like totally unrealistic images that people choose to create of themselves and put out there. And it's like, I think it's just split in two totally different directions. And I think you have to be really careful that you don't end up on the side of it where you're just looking at people who have bodies that are dangerously skinny faces that they've changed. It it feels really tricky to me. Yeah, it used to be that the magazine would do it. And now like you, you just do it and people can see curated images of what they believe to be real people. At least with magazines, you could kind of be like, maybe this is fake. Exactly. Yeah. And it's to me, it's really disappointing because I feel like we fought so hard to have control the control that we do on Instagram specifically and to like be the ones, you know, I think like the idea of influencers in theory, it's so powerful because it's like, you're looking at people who, 
whose lives more closely resemble yours and seeing what they're doing and they're buying. And so like on paper, that should be a much better way to like sell a lifestyle than a magazine. And yet like the tools have become all the same. And Mm -hmm. it's like, it's women who, if they're not actually models, like end up looking just like the models anyway. And, you know, it, to me, it's really, it's just, it's disappointing. What about the positive side of it? Where I think people, Yari Jones, for instance, who was like the first like fat black trans woman to have like a large underwear campaign with with Calvin Klein, like that kind of thing, I think is from social media feedback. I think so too. And I think that's what I meant by like the split. So I think like spaces that encourage people like that are like, you know, that is the plus side. Mm -hmm. And that to me makes it all worth it because like queer people and fat people and even, even people with like different body hair, which Mm -hmm. was like never something you used to see, like all of that can happen and people can be intentional about who they follow in that way. Do you think that these brands that are now saying that they're body positive, hiring more diverse models, do you think that's sincere? Do you think that's them sort of capitalizing on what they think the audience wants? Does it matter? I think about this a lot. And what I have come to is that their intentions don't matter. What matters is the end result. Mm -hmm. And if they're doing it to capitalize on a movement, like fine, at least they're paying attention to what people want and responding accordingly. And if the end result is more diversity in the media we consume, then like, you know, does it really matter what the conversations in the boardrooms look like? I think that your book was sort of like a lot about how you sort of navigating this like as a person, you know, and so like, how, how do we like not get sucked into comparing ourselves to people on social media? Um, and how do we have like a, a healthy relationship with, with beauty? Yeah. I mean, that's the question. <laughs> and I don't think I necessarily like did a good job of doing that. Like I thought that because I was coming to beauty from this angle of like a person who had largely just like been an activist in a lot of ways and like was like this like weird scrappy queer kid that like I was somehow immune to the pressures of beauty and I wasn't and it's like that was when my eating disorder got like really out of control I just became this like like the thinnest and blondest version of myself and um I think what it took in the end was having a fulfilling life outside of social media to make social media's impact on me feel less important. Like Mm -hmm. it took a lot of therapy, a relationship that made me happy, um, like a job that wasn't killing me, you know, all of, all of the things that you kind of forget to deal with if you live on the internet. Mm -hmm. And I needed to figure out how my sense of self could come from within, not from like my surroundings, whether that's social media or my job or the people around me. And that, I mean, I already said therapy, but like, honestly, it took so much therapy and like medication and time. When you talk about hypocrisy in the title, what are you referring to? I was referring to the fact that while I was working in women's media, there was this push to be more diverse and body positive and inclusive. And it was really, really surface level. And it was like all of these people 
that I met who knew all of the buzzwords. And when it came to like front of camera stuff, like could cast the right people, but like they weren't giving themselves that same grace. Mm -hmm. That was exactly what happened to me too. Like I, I remember filming a segment about like body diversity in fashion week. And that day we all ordered like bone broth for lunch. Like, yeah, you know, it's like, you just forget to include yourself in this work that you're doing about making spaces safer for other people. And I think that, um, that's something that women do all the time. How would you define like, cause we were talking around it a little bit, but how would you define beauty? Because when someone says that, I feel like in my mind, I went straight to like makeup. And like, you know, uh, the beauty industry to, to me in my mind, I'm like, okay, we're selling makeup, selling maybe hair products, like we're selling fitness question mark, like, I don't even is Cosmo beauty magazine, like, you know what I mean? Like, what, like, what are we talking about when we're talking about like, beauty itself, and then like the industry on its back? Yeah, that's a really good question. So I guess the industry defines beauty as everything related to like, the aesthetics of a person. So skincare is a really big beauty category, makeup, hair, fitness. I didn't like exactly work in the beauty industry because I was a beauty editor covering the beauty industry, but it's like, it's all kind of mixed together because like you're going to like beauty events constantly. And like, you know, when you're covering an industry, it kind of feels like you're working in it, but it's like beauty is different than the fashion industry. Mm -hmm. And so eventually I switched from a beauty editor to a fashion editor. And then I was doing, and then I became kind of a generalist or doing all of it. I thought that beauty was bad and I really had no idea until I went to fashion. And it's like all of the work that had been done in the beauty industry about diversity and inclusion hadn't even been like brought up in the fashion industry (laughs) is how it felt. And like, it was just so alarming to all of a sudden be going to fashion shows where there wouldn't be a single person like over a hundred pounds. Yeah, It was just so accepted and tolerated. And the attitude was just like, Oh, this is just how it is. And like, I found it really traumatizing to have to spend a month every six months at fashion week, staring at these groups of like anorexic teenagers being totally glorified and no one wanting to engage in a conversation about it. And I think, I think it's gotten a lot better, but it's like, a lot better means there'll be like two plus size girls Mm -hmm. out of 20. You know, it's like, there's, we have so far to go and fashion for so long has gotten away with being so exclusive because like, that's how it defined itself. Like Mm -hmm. it defined itself by being something you aspire to and can never attain. And part of that was using models who have, you know, literally 2% of the population has the body type of a traditional runway model. And that's part of like fashion's whole thing. But to bring it back to social media and like the democratization of fashion, I do think that now that people can like, you know, be influencers, watch fashion week, do all the things that were once happening behind a closed door. I do think that has shaken up fashion a lot. And I do think the fashion industry has had no choice, but to pay attention to what the consumers want in terms of inclusion and representation. And I, I still think that we have only gone like an inch when mm-hmm. we need miles and miles and miles of progress, not to mention like the climate change disaster that like fashion is 
such a huge part of like, there are just so many problems in the industry of aesthetics. I'm just so happy to not be in it anymore. (laughs) (laughs) I wonder with like the body positivity movement, as much as I love it, I wonder if sometimes people see those posts and then feel guilty that they don't, they don't accept their body or like, is that an element of it? Yes. And that is also what I meant by hypocrisy in the book, because I do think that like positivity is now something that's become performed online. Mm -hmm. And it's like, there's always a new way to like be doing badly Mm -hmm. or like, you know, (laughs) to not be good enough. And I feel like for millennials, it's like, you're not a good enough feminist. You're not body positive enough. You're not like whatever enough. And like it to me, online just feels like everyone virtue signaling about their like perfect politics and their perfect feelings about their bodies. And if you don't feel perfectly about your body and aren't like this beacon of like, you know, self-love and sunshine, then you're not doing it right. And it's like yet another pressure that we put on ourselves. It's complicated. I mean, I don't know if you just saw the post that Jazz Jennings did, but she posted, she's like a, a trans teenager who has been on television a lot. And um, she posted a thing where she's like, over the pandemic, I gained 100 pounds. This is my accountability post. And I'm going to come back to it. And I'm uh, challenging myself to lose the weight. And like some people reacted to it with like, good for you, you know, and other people reacted very harshly to it because they were like, it, she's not being body positive. But then it's this backwards thing of like exactly what you're describing and what Allison was bringing up where it's like this thing of um, unless you are toxically positive about every single aspect of yourself, you're a problem. Yeah, exactly. And I do think that there's some truth to the fact that if you're a person with a platform, I think you have an obligation to not publicly disparage yourself. Interesting. I think that if you have gained weight and you say to your hundreds of thousands of followers that gaining weight is bad, they will think that's true, especially the young ones. But I think the very real option is to just not talk about it at all. And just like do what I mean, that's, I guess, the Adele and Rebel Wilson. Exactly. Exactly. Like people are going to comment on it anyway. Like people are going to lose their minds about whatever happens to anyone's to any anyone's body, any woman's body. But especially like even, you know, the way people talk about Ben Affleck, like gaining and losing weight, like they're going to talk about it no matter what happens. Of course. But I think from the perspective of the person whose body it is, like you don't have to be like new body just dropped. (laughs) 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 You know, like you can just like have your process and Mm -hmm. have it be private and like be boundaried. Yeah. We talked a little bit about this at the very beginning, but like, how do you see beauty as a way of letting people know who you are and like, kind of like your, your first introduction to your personality? Yeah. I mean, I feel like how you look is like, it's your book cover. It's like what you want people to know about you before you speak to them. And I think how you do that, it, to me, it does feel like such a metaphor for how you see yourself. And I just think that that's like a really wonderful thing. And I think like having the ability to do that is really fun. And, um, you know, like, Gabby, like I'm looking at your hair and it's like the most beautiful, like peach color I've ever seen. And I feel like I can tell so much about you from like 
the fact that you made that decision. Mm-hmm. And like, on the other hand, like I'm wearing like a nightgown. <laughs> <laughs> so you might know that like, I just moved and like, I don't know. I just like, I, I love like visual cues. And I think like, that's the purpose of like makeup and like hair. And like, you know, I think a lot of it is complete bullshit. Like I think I've become kind of a skincare truther, which we can talk about later, but I think like beauty in terms of like the changes you make or don't make that to me says like how you see yourself, how you want others to see you. Like, I hate that it's kind of been repurposed as something to make us like feel stressed about. Like it should just be fun. It's like, it's not that serious. It's hard because there's some elements of it you, you can't really control. Like I think your skincare is a really big one and it's like really hard for people who, I mean, I, I think we haven't reached this level of like acne positive or like acne positivity or like acne. Like, I think that's something that people still feel like they can really comment on or that they feel really like upset about. And so like, I don't know how that dovetails with your skincare trutherism, but it just that to me is like such a a bummer that people are just so it's like such a, a anxiety for people. Yeah. And I had really bad cystic acne and went on Accutane. It changed my life. The, the feeling of waking up every morning and not knowing like what your face is going to look like. It's terrifying. It's terrifying. And so that was when I was like 18 or 19. And then when I was 25 and working in beauty and having to test things on myself, it brought my acne back Mm -hmm. and it was so upsetting. And it was like, I had like a pimple beard, everything I used made it worse. And I eventually just like saw a dermatologist and like the dermatologist was like, you need to test things on your elbow. Like, what (laughs) what are you doing? But it really just made me feel like all of these products that were supposed to help, like it has turned every person into like a DIY dermatologist. Yeah. And I think that skin is the largest organ on your body. Like it is absorbent. There are like so few regulations in the American beauty industry. Like we don't know what the effects are of all of this stuff that we're told is going to keep us young. And I just serums and cream, you know, I have uh, eczema and like my redness on my face and all this stuff. Yeah. Yeah, I don't have like great skin. I just start piling on the serums when I get sad about it. And then I'm like, oh, I'm all red. And my partner like recently was like, you put every single thing in the bathroom (laughs) on your face. Like, of course you're red. Like, it's just, it feels to me, it's like embarrassing. And it feels to me like a, a feedback loop sometimes, or like that's, what people are looking at. So then I try to cover it the most. And then like you get like flakes coming off your face. (laughs) Like it's just, I did a whole book tour with eczema on my chin. Like c'est la vue. It really is the skincare industrial complex because it's like the more you use, the more you need. Mm -hmm. When really what skin wants is to not have anything on it. Yeah, I've, I've always sort of felt rebellious in that like I don't have an intense skincare routine. And like, I can tell that people, some people in my life find that like horrifying. (laughs) And like, it's like, you know, shouldn't I be using like anti-aging eye cream if I'm going to be preventative? And like, I tried it for like a week and or like two weeks and I was like, I hate this. Yeah. Sunscreen. (laughs) Honestly, just wear sunscreen according to my partner. I also think it like really reinforces this idea that aging is horrible. 
Yeah. We have to, even if your skin is so youthful and line free, you have to go out of your way to do everything you can right now so that you never look a second older. And like that is so harmful, I think. And why why is it so bad to look older? (laughs) Yeah, especially when we know for a fact that women get hotter as they get older. Exactly. Thank you. (laughs) Well, I just I just hope like anyone listening who is dealing with acne or cystic acne or whatever, like I just I hope for a future where it's like fine, you know, where it's like it it sucks because there's two things going on where like you're in probably in pain and like, I just feel like adding the the shame or like adding this thing where like we don't ever see that in media and every person on TV has perfect skin and every person like I just that's a thing that I, I think about a lot, which I don't know if there's an acne positivity movement, but like, let me know. <laughs> let me know, listeners, yeah. and I'll get in on it. I also want to talk about showing who you are, because I I feel like people really struggle with like, what is my style? What is my what do I want to show people? To me, a lot of it, and like as a queer person, you know, you're like a femme presenting lesbian. I don't want to put words in your mouth. Yes, that is correct. But like as, <laughs> right? So like the idea is like, oh, sometimes I'm like, I have to get a septum ring and like shave part of my, like, you know, there was a lot of signaling of like, how do I look gay? Yeah. And I totally went through that phase. Like I came out and shaved my head and mm-hmm. started wearing like little boys clothes. I'm like, yeah, people knew I was fucking gay, mm-hmm. but like not the right kind of gay. Not like the true to yourself. I, yeah. I wasn't like attracting people who I was attracted to. I just, I felt really uncomfortable. And what I've actually found is that like the more femme I let myself get, the more people actually read me as a lesbian. Really? Yes. It's been really surprising in my thirties that like I'm growing out my hair and like wearing caftans and like, I see like women like clock me and it's like, Oh, I just had to like lean into the thing that felt the most natural. And I don't know what it is. I can't put my finger on it, but I think like letting go of the ideas that I had around like how lesbians are supposed to look Mm-hmm. has like really set me free. I, every time I've been like, oh, like I said one time in front of a group of friends, like, I don't think I look gay. And they like laughed way too, <laughs> way too hard, like way too hard, like a little too hard. <laughs> I was like, yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, And I think like, I am lucky in that I am able to like loudly signal that. And like, that's on purpose. That's like always been on purpose because I that's the thing I want people to know. And then I feel like there's this thing where people feel like I don't look gay enough or then they like are like, I can't look that gay in front of my parents. I can't go Mm -hmm. into work. They like try to do I feel like for those people, they try to do like little things. But like it is so hard because you I want to be able to agree with you and be like, yeah, everyone can just kind of present themselves. But then I feel like people either don't know what they want to look like or have a complete disconnect from what they look like or they just, they're just like not able to. Yeah. And I think it's very different for people who have like non-normative expressions of gender. Like I do think, you know, it's not necessarily a privilege to be a feminine woman in terms of like the world at large, but in terms of how easy it is to like find clothes I like Mm -hmm. and like be in public, Mm -hmm. I do think that there is a certain degree of privilege there, especially as a white femme. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think that for people whose gender like doesn't neatly line up with like the things available to you Mm -hmm. as someone who also identifies as a woman, I think think it's different. And I, I think also like when you just come out 
it feels different too, because it, at least for me, it felt like being queer was the thing about me that was the most important that I wanted people to know first. Right. And so that depends. Um, you know, like 15 years later, I now kind of feel like, well, if I don't know about your sex life, you don't necessarily need to know about mine. Like, I don't know, yeah. like I don't need to like put on a beanie to go to the grocery store anymore, <laughs> which I feel like is, <laughs> in my twenties would be something that I like would think about and be like, well, I need to like look gay because yeah. I'm going to be in public. And I just like it, the feeling, my feelings around that have changed a lot. I feel like I don't care about fashion in a lot of ways. And then it's like a burden to every day have to dress myself. <laughs> <laughs> Where like, I just, because I think it's mainly because I have so many sensory things where like, I can't wear most clothes because they just like cause me massive amounts of discomfort. And so then to have to only pick clothes that like, don't cause me discomfort is so limiting that I'm not even excited about those clothes. And then how do I give, you know, but then I still have to fucking get dressed every day. And like, and like, there's an expectation that you're supposed to like, wear a different outfit, even though I would love oh to my just God. wear the same outfit every day. Get a black turtleneck. <laughs> just get a black turtleneck. Wear that every day. You're a genius. People think you're a genius. I can't wear a turtleneck. It irritates <laughs> my neck, Gabby. You need like an Eileen Fisher, like the system wardrobe. Where what? You have- what is that? I'm, I mean, I wear the same pants every single day. I just have multiple pairs of them. And then I just wear like different black tank tops for the most part. But like even just f- trying to find like different jackets that fit and feel okay. And like, it's just such a burden. And then like, to feel like that you said of like, but then this is like how you're presenting yourself to the world. And it's like, well, for me, the way that I feel like I have the healthiest relationship to beauty and fashion is for me to be like, it's the least interesting thing about me. Yeah. Has been like a helpful like journey. (laughs) Totally. And I don't know. I've always been really jealous of people who do like uniform dressing because right. I feel like you must just save so much time. But you could just wear black every day and I would just be like, that's a New Yorker. Yeah. I mean, I mostly do that. But the issue is that like even just finding enough like seven days worth of that is difficult. <laughs> like, you know? Like, <laughs> yeah. I mean, my girlfriend wears like black skinny jeans and a t-shirt and sneakers every day like like the cutest little cartoon character and I really admire that and like she just gets dressed mm-hmm. and then she's dressed and like I become like a tornado every morning and have to like try on everything I own all over again and then like leave it in a circle yeah. around the bedroom so I go I get I like will try on clothes and then I'll go that's not even me anymore and it's like <laughs> it's been one day it's been one day, you insane Gemini. Um, <laughs> but yeah, but I guess I just feel like there's, you have to sort of figure out like what relationship works for you. And like, yes. if that feeling of like, this is how you're presenting to the world. This is so, this is so meaningful. It's like overwhelming to you because you aren't good at fashion or fashion doesn't come naturally to you or you don't have a clear sense of style. Like just being like, well, they can also just get to know me. <laughs> You know, <laughs> totally. Yeah, you need like a capsule wardrobe. Do you, are you familiar with that phrase? No, it's like where everything you own goes with everything else. So you have like, okay, I'll send you a link. Eileen Fisher does a good one, capsule. and it's like all very soft, like black and white pieces. I can't it's do like, white. Just oh, black. You can do, okay, so just do black. Yeah. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> Um, would you want to play a game show? 
Yes. Um, okay, so this game show is called Hypotheticals. You and Gabby are my contestants. I'm going to give you a series of hypothetical situations. And you would tell me what you would do, ask any clarifying questions you have. Um, okay, are you ready and excited? Both. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so our first game show is America's favorite game show. Would you stay with this cheater? Okay. You find out that your partner of 10 years has been hiring a cam girl to read them bedtime stories every night so they can fall asleep. Aww. They sleep in another bedroom due to their insomnia, so you didn't know about this ritual, which also involves nudity. Would you stay with this cheater? Wait, how long have we been together? 10 years. I First of all, I would love to sleep in a different room. <laughs> um, Mal will hate that. But um, yeah, I think, okay, so they're naked and they're reading a book, but they're not doing anything inherently sexual. Well, both your oh. partner and the camp girl are naked. Yeah, but the whole that's thing. not, but that's not inherently sexual. Sure. I love the idea of someone paying a camp girl to, to read a book. I think that's actually like, that's allyship. <laughs> I don't know how, but I feel like it is. I feel like you're right. I also feel like, would there be the opportunity for me to join in this ritual or is no. it like her private thing it's very private and they and you're not allowed to be a part of it is it the same cam girl yes wait how long has this been going on they've been <laughs> they've been doing it since their insomnia got worse seven years ago <gasps> i i truly i i think it's fine like i don't really have any like i think it's okay it's weird that they didn't tell me because i feel like I feel like I want to be in a relationship where we're open and honest, but I don't know. I listen to meditations. I guess like, how is that different? I don't know. Gabrielle? I feel like if there are going to be rules in the relationship where like you're allowed to spend like one-on-one -on -one naked time with someone who's not your partner, that that needs to be like clarified. Because if like <laughs> you're in there with a cam girl, like then I can also be in there with a cam girl. Right. But like right. we just need to talk about it so that we know what the ground rules are. So right. I feel like I would stay if it could be like talked about and like something could be agreed upon. But the idea of like doing it in secret yeah. doesn't sit well with me. And I don't want to take away that girl's money. Like how much is my... Yeah. Also like how much is my partner spending like that we don't know what the other is spending on well you're asking a lot of important questions <laughs> oh no because are we about to go bankrupt not only are you about to go bankrupt they have they married that camp girl five years ago never told you oh wow. that's that sucks for her because well i guess she's getting all the money but it sucks because her partner doesn't her husband or wife doesn't want to live with her they don't want to live together this is what works best for this them. girl seems cool <laughs> 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 okay our next game is this a date you are a passenger in an uber pool you have the you are the first passenger and start getting along well with the driver when they go to pick up more passengers the uber driver asks if you want to move to the front seat so you can be more comfortable and keep talking they offer you chilled water that was not available in the back seat is this a date no why because I feel like the Uber driver's job is to like be nice to you. Right. They want a rating. Yeah. But you got chilled water. Allison. <laughs> I feel like, yeah, I feel like they're, I feel like it's like, it's like thinking that the waiter is flirting with you. Exactly. Or the bartender. Yeah. What about when they reach over and put their hand on your thigh? I, that but, sounds like a nightmare. 
<laughs> Am I Were interested they what in on your thigh? Put put their hand on your thigh. Oh, nightmare. Nine one one. Yeah, I once had a taxi driver. Um, I was sitting in the front reach out and caress my face no no and it was like one of the more revolting moments of my life no that's awful yes that's horrible yeah it wasn't a date yeah okay so i'm gonna say it's not a date okay but it was your ex who was the uber driver (gasps) that's romantic that's especially not a date (laughs) complicated (laughs) which which ex (laughs) a mid-level so you don't hate them but you don't love them okay our final game Are you a terrible parent? Your teenager is a horrible driver who never pays attention to the road because they are always texting. (gasps) To teach them a lesson, one day you throw a life-size doll in the middle of the road (gasps) as they are driving home, ensuring they will hit it and think they ran over someone. Are you a terrible parent? Why are they texting and driving? That's so bad. It's so bad. I would take their phone away. This is what you chose to do. Wow. Are they driving just themselves or are they an Uber driver? <laughs> they're driving, they're <laughs> is driving my just themselves. Is my, is my teenager so that's horrifying. Um, okay. Wow. Um, I think you're a good parent because I don't think they should be drive texting and driving. That's really one of the worst things you can do. But also this reminds me of like in the nineties when they would do those like fake drunk driving things in the school where they would like pretend one of the kids died. Do you know what I'm talking about? Not really, but that's incredibly traumatizing. It was like this thing to to keep people from drunk driving and it was like widespread. They did it at like a lot of American high schools and they would like take one person and they would say, You're gonna be the victim and they would like have that person not go to school that day. And that was the only person that like knew about it. And then they would announce to everyone that that person had died in a drunk driving accident. And then everyone would flip out and then they would be like, okay, so now you see why you shouldn't drunk drive. Whoa. That was a real thing they did in the nineties. Where did you grow up? In Florida. Why does everyone ask me that? (laughs) (laughs) Well, we had this guy come to our school and tell us this like really traumatic story about how his wife was killed in a drunk driving accident. But the drunk driving accident was that someone drove their car through their house <gasps> and they were sleeping in bed and his <gasps> wife died. And I was like, I guess I'm never driving, drinking, living in a house. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. I think about him all the time. So it really worked. Wow. But, um, I do think that like, yes, I'm a terrible parent to answer your original question, because I don't think that you should have to like scam your children into doing the right thing. That's okay. I well, hear that you. sort of breaks down the entire premise of our <laughs> terrible parents. There's so many scams involved. That's true. <laughs> this, this program was called every 15 minutes and it, it, takes months of advanced planning and it's like involves police, fire, paramedic, hospital, court, lawyers, judge, jail, coroner, funeral home. Like they go all out with it. Oh my God. And I don't know what, and then there's a whole section on Wikipedia called effectiveness and I'm going to guess not effective. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So in that case, I think we are a good parent. So you like this method of throwing a life-size doll in the middle of the road? Yes, because driving is very scary and dangerous for teens. Okay. Well, parents, listen up. (laughs) No one, no parent should be taking advice from me at any time ever. (laughs) Oh my God. This has been what a journey. Um, Gabrielle, thank you so much. I would, I would expect no less from a fellow Gabrielle. Where can we find your work? 
Thank you so much. Um, thank you for having me. You can find my work. My book is sold. Hopefully anywhere books are sold. It's called Everybody Else is Perfect. And then if you want to read articles I wrote, you can just Google my name and unfortunately find thousands and thousands of things on the internet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Amazing. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. back to just between us it's time for topic x x x x x x x x baby baby oh boy okay so a gal went off her meds i'm the gal and then you went back on and then i went back on so <laughs> what happened so basically i had been contemplating going off my meds for a while because i'd been on them since the great breakup of 2017 Sure. Not to be confused with the huge abandonment of 2020. Um, I, I love this like era. Like it's like at a museum, the era, you know what I mean? Yeah. And it's like the Paleolithic era, the Jurassic era. It's like that. I'm moving out of the abandonment era, though. So that's really thrilling. I'm so happy for you. Thank you. Uh, okay. So. And so basically, I wanted to try going off of them because I'd been learning in school that like, while meds are effective, they're maybe not as effective for everybody and that like you don't need to be on them forever. And I also felt like I had that I, I had weight gain due to it and that I was hotter in terms of like the weather and sweatier and stuff. And like, I just was like wondering what it would be like off of them. Mm -hmm. Also, my insurance, I switched insurance and my insurance suddenly was like, I don't approve your medication. Um, and so that sort of like became like this catalyst where I was like, oh, well, maybe now is the time, the time to try because mm -hmm. I'm already having issues with my insurance. Spoiler, my insurance ended up approving the medication. Oh, basically, my psychiatrist just had to like submit extra paperwork because basically I was on Trintelix and Wellbutrin and Trintelix is a newer form of medication and it's really hard to get insurance to approve it. So my psychiatrist had to like prove that I'd been on all these other medications yeah. and that those hadn't worked. This is all very normal and good yeah. for a health insurance <laughs> um, situation in a in a, um, a first world country. So yeah. and so I was like, okay, well, I'll I'll try going off of them and I'll I'll see what it's like. Oh boy! And at first I was like, <laughs> I feel the same. This is totally fine. I'm gonna not have side effects anymore. I thought that I, you know, I had basically I had this new way of thinking that mm -hmm. I had never had before. And so I was wondering if I could maintain this way of thinking off the medication because now I had a like a point of reference. Whereas before I went on my my most recent round of meds, I didn't know what it was like to think in a more healthy way. Mm -hmm. I now did. So I thought, OK, now that I know I can just like apply it myself. Right. Was like my philosophy. Right. And it didn't work out great. <laughs> okay. So what were, what were your meds for? Um, I, they're for anxiety and OCD. I would say that my OCD symptoms, like, I don't necessarily think they're that much worse off the meds. I mean, they were already kind of bad on the meds. So um, I was sort of like used to managing that. Yeah. But what really changed was just this like, hum of anxiety mm -hmm. where I just like I wake up anxious I feel anxious I became much more emotionally volatile mm -hmm. I was much it was I was always sort of on the verge of tears right a big thing that happened that I was like okay I need to address this is that like I wanted to in moments of like severe frustration 
I wanted to hit myself. Oh, and, no. and like, I hadn't wanted to do that in a really long time. Ugh, I'm sorry. It's okay. And so I was like, oh, this feeling's not good. Yeah. <laughs> this was when you were off the meds. Yeah. Yeah. And so I was like, oh, okay. Like, you know, it's an instinct that is very familiar to me, but like not when I had had in like a, a many years. And mm-hmm. so it was like, oh, okay. Like, uh, this is not good. But then you have this sense of like, well, but I made this big decision. Shouldn't I wait this out? Shouldn't I see like how, you know, should I give it more time? But then also a very interesting thing that happened was I didn't lose any weight, which like (laughs) implies that this like added weight that I've gained in the last few years is most likely just because I don't monitor my eating very much and I'm older. And so in a way, I'm really glad that I did this experiment because now I used to like blame my meds for my current body. And I used to be like, this isn't my real body. This is my body on meds. And so it was like harder for me to sort of accept my body. And now that I'm like, oh no, this is just my body. It's like a lot easier for me to accept in a lot of ways. And like, it also makes me feel like if I, if I do want to get fitter or do this or do that, like I'll be able to versus feeling like, well, there's no point because I'm on these meds. Oh, if that makes sense. Yeah. And like being able to parse out what actually was a side effect and what um, did your sweatiness go away? No. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay. So maybe the meds are not what's uh, causing any of it. Well, that's a really interesting, yeah, right? And so like, I was like blaming my meds for all of this stuff. And now I'm like, oh, maybe it's just me. <laughs> so, okay. So it took a downward turn. Yeah. And then I think one day I had, and I kept being like, I need to go back on my meds. I need to go back on my meds. But then I like, I wasn't initiating that mm-hmm, process. Mm-hmm. And then I had like a really rough day where I just was like very emotional and like crying. And like, I was like, okay, now's the time. And the other thing that was really interesting was like, I was getting into to anxiety loops in a way that I had in a long time where obviously I still, even on medication, I still have anxiety. I still have bad thoughts. I still mm-hmm. whatever. But I was finding it so much harder to get myself out of that. Mm-hmm. And that like, again, is like, oh, that's what the meds helped me do. Because it's not like, oh, I have none of these issues at all when I'm on my meds. I absolutely do. It's just like the amount of power that they have over me. Mm -hmm. Even though like this like disrupted my life, I think that going through this experience of going off of them and going on them, I now have like a way healthier relationship with my medication because I now understand that it is helping me. Appreciation. Yeah. Well, I'm not like constantly questioning if I need it. And so just like knowing that I need it because Mm -hmm. like it's been four years. And so I've changed so much in those four years. I was like, do I still need them? Like I I just had all these questions. And now I can sort of like put those questions to rest and be like, I do need my medication. My medication does help me. I don't need to blame my medication for these things that are just my body. It also in a lot of ways, like I forgot what it was like to not be able to get myself out of an anxiety loop. I think I was maybe judgmental of other people who weren't able to get themselves out of those loops. Oh, And so now I'm like, oh, I remember now I have like a better sense of like how difficult it truly is. Mm -hmm. And I think that that will help me a lot as I like enter into the grad school part where I I will have like clients and stuff. And so as volatile as it was and how like, caused a lot of back and forth in my head of like, what should I do? A lot of, I now feel now that I'm past that time, I feel like way more clarity than I had before this experiment. What would you say to people who think that it's like giving up? To go back on meds? Yeah, if someone's like, I don't want to go back on my meds, I'm giving up. It's giving up what though? I don't know. There's all this like stuff about like, you got to do it, your self-improvement and you got to be strong and you got to like, whatever. 
like all these people that are like, you don't need meds, drink celery juice or whatever. I think if I've learned anything in school, it's everyone is so different. And mm-hmm. what works for people is so different. And what works for people in certain times of their life versus other times of their life is different. And so you have to allow yourself the freedom to find out what works best for you and then not assign judgment to whatever that thing is. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, who knows? Everyone's brain is just so different. And I think that I think that I had fallen into a trap where I was so pro meds and I was like, everyone should be on meds. And mm-hmm. like that was like a big advice that I would give to everybody. Right. Um, and now I'm like, I can't speak to anything other than like my individual experience mm-hmm. and knowing that it's right for me. So all I can encourage other people to do is to figure out what is right for them Mm -hmm. and for them to allow the possibility that that may or may not be meds. The umbrella of like everyone should be on meds versus no one should be on meds is like, I feel like anyone who takes either of those stances just might be full shit. (laughs) Well, it's just dangerous, you know, because in the same way that like we all react differently to the foods that we eat, like Mm -hmm. we all just react Mm -hmm. differently. Also realizing that for me, I think I'm most likely going to be on meds the rest of my life. Mm -hmm. Whereas for other people, they might not need to. Obviously, I think if you have certain disorders, if you're schizophrenic, if you're bipolar, I think it is a much different thing to decide to go off your meds. And it's not something that I would advise. But if you're being treated for generalized anxiety disorder, depression, like you're allowed to to see if you still need it. And then you're allowed to decide if you go back on, like your relationship with these things can be way more flexible than I think that we allow ourselves to think. It's hard because I, when the meds are working, you go, I don't even have any problems. Right. It's <laughs> like, like, it's the, it's this catch 22 of like the meds are working. So therefore you're like, I don't need the meds. <laughs> yeah. Or even like, I, I'm trying to figure out if maybe I need to go up on mine or, you know, because there is still fluctuation. I have bipolar disorder. There is still fluctuation in like, it's hard for me to parse out what is happiness and what is mania, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is hard, right? Because like if one of your symptoms is like good, quote unquote, then if you, how do you know if the meds are working in a way? So I check in a lot with my psychiatrist and I, like there was a period, April 2019, where I went way, way up on my antipsychotic and antidepressants. So that because I was like, pulled so far down. And then we had to like, pull myself all the way up and then go back to like a more regulated level. But like, it's always changing. Like, I don't think I'm going to find I'll be on meds the rest of my life. But I don't think I'll find one that it's going to just stay at. Like, I think it's going to need to change a lot or it's going to need to maybe even change brands. Like, I don't you know, I don't know. Or it'll it'll need to change um, what what milligrams are, mm-hmm. you know, So, I I mean, I don't know. And as part of me finds that frustrating because it's like, okay, you're not like you're not done. And when there are backslides, I'm like, well, now this med isn't even working. But like it's it's this thing where like then I one time I had a mania and I was like, I feel great. And I like went off my meds without telling anyone so that because I was like, I feel amazing. And so it's it's been more important for me to just like have outside people who are like monitoring me closely, even though I resent it. (laughs) How long were you off of yours for? I think a little under two months. Yeah. And it started to go south kind of right away. No, because it takes a few weeks for it to like get out of your body. But once it was out of your body, it started going south. Yeah, but it also would fluctuate, right? So then I have a couple of good days. Right. You know, and so like I would be like, oh, well, maybe I don't need to go back on them. And then it was like, you know, like I had like a great birthday weekend, right? Mm -hmm. As I had started taking them. And I was like, well, 
look at how good I'm doing. And it's like, but you know what? Yeah. Also now learning that like these side effects that I thought were side effects aren't really Mm -hmm. like, what is the downside of me being on the medication? Yeah. I think like if you're like, oh, it doesn't have to be this hard, then great. And also like, you know, you forget, I think like sometimes I forget how bad it was or how bad Mm -hmm. it could be or... Mm -hmm. Like when you were talking about, you know, being like, oh, wow, I haven't thought about self-harming. I haven't, you know, thought about like anxiety loops. You know, did you feel like, oh, wow, I now I remember how bad it was. And like, I don't want that anymore. Yeah. yeah. I was like, no wonder my 20s were such a mess. Exactly. This feels terrible. Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I was like, oh, this explains so much. But you like forget. You like lose your frame of reference. Yeah. it Like it's this idea that, when people go, oh, well, being on meds, you won't be your real self. I'm like, no, no, no. You will clear out all the cobwebs and you'll be like, oh, here I am. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm glad you're back on them. I think it's just a matter of like how you feel and how you're able to like get through the day. And maybe we don't need all the extra noise around it. But I also have to recognize that like this isn't a magic pill. And no. that even once I'm back on them, I'm still going to struggle and I'm still going to have to deal with these things. And I'm still going to have to push through, you know, not giving into all of my OCD compulsions and that like, this doesn't mean that like the work is done. (laughs) It just means that I'm like, hopefully going to get to like a a better baseline, but it's, it's continuous and you can't just like take the pill and be like, oh, I'm good. I know. I wish you could though. Yeah. And that'd be so cool. I wish you could. And I, (laughs) I just am like, yeah, I just feel um, aware of the ups and downs. And so then I'm like, oh, I'm not manic. I'm not manic. And then like the next day I'll be like, I wish I was dead. And it's like, oh, damn it. You were because now you are depressed. That's why they call it manic depression. (laughs) So anyway, I'm glad you're back on the meds. I feel like pushing yourself to be off them when you were miserable is like unnecessary. Yeah. Good for you. I hope that you know that it's okay to resent the outside help <laughs> and all it's okay to resent it. Yeah. And I that, do. you know, but that you can also see the benefit in it. Like both those things can be true. I do. I just don't want to give in, but I, you know, like I, I don't like to admit, but you seem very like accepting and chill in a way where you're kind of just like, I went off them. It didn't work. I'm back on them. Like it's very healthy, very healthy, Allison. Well, thank you. Well, good for you. Moving out of your reputation era into your um, what cottage core Taylor Swift, where she's like in love and happy. <laughs> Melissa, do you want to come on in and share your thoughts? I'm here. <laughs> what are your thoughts on this episode? Splendid episode. I love it. I love you guys. Doing a phenomenal job, sweeties. Oh, thank you so much. Do you like you were nodding? You're wearing a sweatshirt that says therapy. Mm-hmm. Oh, here's a fun story. What? Tell me. I was in the parking area downstairs and I had on another shirt. So I changed to this one. Mm-hmm. As you guys know, I don't wear bras. Right. And then I looked around and I was like, no one's here. Uh oh. And then I looked after I changed and there was a camera directly in front of me pointing right <laughs> into my car. You know what? It's that camera. It's that security person's lucky day. <laughs> so, Allison, if your building says something about a naked person changing in their car, it was me. Do you know what I hate about this building is that everyone has access to those cameras. Great, even better. Yeah, like you would think that it would just be like the board or like that the the homeowners 
like association, like management. But no, like any tenant can access the cameras Great. at any time. Do it. it. Do it right now. Let's see Melissa's tits. <laughs> no. I want to know. There's so much footage of me like letting people into the building, like being an idiot. Like it's horrifying. I Wait, you can see it right now? I don't understand how, but I know <sighs> technically, yes. Great. I love it. I can't wait. Hop on our Instagram for a clip of Melissa changing. Yeah. <laughs> I'll blur I, it. I'm I'm fine with it. Tits can be yeah. out. I'm fine. Well, let's check in with Allison's Patreon for a <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Drive some more traffic. Oh, wow. What do we rate this episode? You know, wow. 12 out of 13 jagged little pills. That's a pretty good rating. I like that. Me too. Um, I'll do 17 out of 13 unnecessary skincare products. Oh, wow. Yeah, 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 yeah. Let's get in there. Break down <laughs> big skincare. I'm going to give it 101 out of 100 OG episodes. Woo! Number one, number one. Well, wow. Thank you so much to Gabrielle Korn for being our guest. This Between Us is a Forever Dog production hosted by me, Allison Raskin. And me, Gabby Dunn. Produced by Melissa D. Mont. Executive produced by Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. Brendan Burns composed our killer theme music. To listen to this podcast ad-free, sign up for Forever Dog Plus at foreverdogpodcast.com slash plus. And check out video clips of our podcast on YouTube at youtube.com slash foreverdogteam or youtube.com slash show. Make sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at foreverdogteam to keep up with all the latest Forever Dog news. Also, at Emotional Support Lady and at Allison Raskin for Allison, at Gabby Road for me, at BWM Pod for me, and also at She Is Not Melissa because she might throw up that tit video. We don't know. <laughs> Forever. Yeah.